Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program. Hello, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. We've got uh, myself, Jeff, and Brian with you today. Today, we're going to be talking about a somewhat sensitive and yet very important topic, and that is human sexuality. Now, over the years, we at BibleQuestions.org have received lots and lots of questions that are of what we might call a sexual nature, including those about pornography, sex between unmarried people, unmarried people living together, divorce, remarriage, homosexuality, gay marriage, transgender issues, sex change operations, and such. And, you know, in some ways, Brian, it's not really surprising, you know, given our culture's increasing emphasis on sexual freedom or diversity of sexual expression or associated, you know, civil rights, especially beginning in the 1960s. And of course, where popular culture leads, many religious groups who claim to be Christian, you know, tend to follow uh, those popular cultural trends in various degrees. You know, sometimes by not teaching on the trends or by tolerating them or even actually openly endorsing them. But for, you know, professed Bible believers, which hopefully our listeners are, the scriptures give very clear guidance, instruction, commands, if you will, regarding human sexuality and the kinds of things we should and shouldn't do. Of course, we can, you know, ask ourselves, you know, the basic question, you know, what does God through the scriptures, you know, have to say about our sexuality. In a few moments, uh, we'll see that God created sexuality in the first place, so not only should he know what's best for us, but also have the right to regulate it. So, Brian, let me kind of toss it over to you for some uh, introductory remarks, and then you can get us started. Yeah, that sounds great. You know, Jeff, as you know, in our country, and of course, we realize that we have listeners from around the world who, within their own countries, really kind of see different trends that may or may not necessarily mirror what we see in the United States. But certainly here within the last 20 years, we've seen this rise in sexual immorality, whether it be not just homosexuality, but, you know, adultery, you know, fornication in general. So people having sex before they're married. We now see it progress where we have federal legislation basically codifying the fact that couples can marry and they have rights and the glorifying of transgender sex change operations. The sad thing is with young children now and trying to influence them that they can decide whether they are male or female. So it's very shocking. But as you touched on, you know, and really as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. The Bible covers a lot of these very clearly. And it's really because man has always been the same. I mean, when you look back in the Old Testament, you see Sodom and Gomorrah and how they became very perverse. And you see the appetites that men had that when they were not following God as he intended, that man comes up with all kinds of things that God had to address in his law because of how perverse people become. So anyhow, so let's start out by talking about sexual origin. And that really starts with going back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2. And if we look in verse 18, we see here that it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. We skip down to verse 21. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So we see the reason here why God created male and female. And if we go on down to verse 24 here in, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this is something Jesus reiterated in Matthew chapter 19, 
verses 4 and 5. So in the beginning, his intention was that you have a man and a woman who leave their father and mother. They become married. They become one flesh. And they procreate, if you will. They populate the earth with people. So this was really from, once again, the beginning, God's intention. So Jeff, I'll hand it over to you. And as we'll kind of see as this podcast unfolds, uh, the simple truth, if you will, of Genesis 2, there's a lot packed into what Brian just went over that we'll begin to kind of tease out you know, as we go through the podcast. For example, the Bible has a lot to say about what we might call sexual purity. Now, certainly popular culture you know, would have you believe that sexual experimentation or losing one's virginity or having a variety of sexual experiences, of course, so long as you practice, quote-unquote, safe sex, are all a normal part of growing up and a normal part of life. However, that's not really what the Bible says. So beginning with 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Or know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, and this is New King James Version, I, I might add, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites shall inherit the kingdom of God. Likewise, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, flee fornication. Every sin that a man does is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sins against his own body. Now, already we have a little bit of a disconnect between the verbiage I'm using and modern culture. Words like fornication, for instance, is a term we often don't use. So in a lot of modern translations, you may see the word sexual immorality or just immorality instead of this somewhat dated term fornication which you can find in like King James Version, American Standard Version. But if you look at the associated verses, especially Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2, you can see pretty easily that this term fornication, or this somewhat vague term sexual immorality, is a general term for all sexual activity outside of a scriptural marriage. For example, again, Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Likewise, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2, or verse 1 starting. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, or again, some translations would have fornication, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Of course, from these scriptures, we understand that the term fornication, like King James, or sexual immorality was in some other translations, would not only include consenting sex between two unmarried heterosexuals, but it would include things like rape, prostitution, incest, adultery, expression of homosexuality, pedophilia, group sex, bigamy, polygamy, bestiality, and other perversions, if you will. Basically, since the Bible condemns something using a general term, all of the various specific acts or specific types would be included in that. So, in general, from a scriptural perspective, God wants people to be sexually pure. You know, we might call a state of virginity, which some people kind of laugh at, but certainly not the well-experienced multiple lovers multiple sexual experiences outside of marriage that unfortunately is very common in today's society, right? Yeah, let's talk next about, you know, sexual thinking. You know, as with all emotions and the good elements of God's design for man and how we should live, you know, there is what God intended and there are ways in which man turns these godly emotions into something negative. So I, for instance, think of joy, you know, as an emotion that God gave us to really help us in our lives to experience happiness with things that happen. Well, if you think about this from a sexual perspective, you could have joy in committing fornication, but that's a warped way, if you will, a perverse way to experience joy. It wasn't the way in which God intended. So now when it comes to sexuality, 
You know, God's intention was that sexual intercourse serve a special purpose. So an intimate relationship between a man and a woman is a special blessing that generates righteous emotions and strengthens the marital relationship. But when you think about lust, in other words, lusting after someone else, a modest dress, pornography, these are all just examples of a perversion of this special blessing from the Lord. So one thing the Bible makes very clear, and we understand just from how God created us, because he did create us in his image and his likeness, that you know it is sinful to support or be aroused by watching other people commit fornication. That's what makes pornography so insidious. So in essence, when you view pornography, you are participating in their evil deeds. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning verse 19, it says, fornication and adultery here are listed with the host of other works of the flesh and as things that God condemns. We are also told in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, it says, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So we as Christians and as godly people should take a stand against sin, not glorify it as a means to fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, when you think about this idea of lust, this is another example where lust actually, most of the time, we associate it with something negative, and and understandably so when we're talking about sexual things, for instance. But, you know, lusting for something, the word lust in and of itself isn't necessarily negative. In fact, God gave us desires after good things, not illicit things, if you will. So when we pervert that good kind of lust, what we might call zeal is, is probably a good word to think about that kind of lust. A perverse side of that would be, you know, looking and desiring somebody else and thinking about committing sin with them. And Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28, where some were saying, you know, it's only if you commit the physical act. But Jesus said, no, I say to you, this is Matthew 5, 28, but I say to you, unto you, that everyone that looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that comes from the King James Version. So Jesus took this a step further and made it clear when he was on this earth, it isn't just the physical act. But it's that perverse lusting and desiring to do something with somebody and kind of going through that in your mind. Well, that's pornography, isn't it? Or that could be just you standing out in society and looking at somebody and what we might say, undress them with your eyes, those kinds of things. Now, how about a modest dress? You know, it's not uncommon, certainly when we're younger and we don't really understand, we want to be popular, those kinds of things, that we will dress in such a way to attract attention from the opposite sex. And I don't think anybody could deny, well, you want to be attractive to others. And what we may not necessarily think is, well, you're creating sexual attraction specifically. So when you want to be, quote unquote, sexy or hot in the eyes of others, well, that's that's what we're talking about here. So as a result, you'll see not just, you know, children or teenagers, but certainly adults even will wear low cut tops short shorts, they'll have bare midriffs, they'll have tight, clinging, you know, revealing clothing that's suggestive. They'll have even shirts or clothing they wear that has words or pictures on it that are very suggestive. Or how about things like tattoos? I mean, we live in a society now where many people have tattoos on their chest. And for some women, for instance, they'll have tattoos on the lower back, inviting the eye to go where it shouldn't. So, you know, those you could say people are purposely doing to draw attention to themselves. And of course, if you're not godly, then you don't really care about that. You want to be seen by others. Well, the Bible makes it clear that all of us should dress to profess godliness. In fact, it gives an example of women, for instance, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, where it says, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So it can be more than just revealing clothing, right? It could be 
you know, dressing up to just be very showy, for lack of a better term. But verse 10 says, but, talking about dress, dress which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. To dress, to profess godliness, of course, would be, as it says, modestly. Now, we did have a couple of episodes where we talked about dress. So episode 7 and 113, we did an entire episode about dress and, you know, God's expectations and so forth. Jeff, I'll turn it over to you. So, so far we've seen the origin of sexuality, you know, male, female, boy, girl, man, woman. We've seen, at least hinted at it in Genesis chapter 2, you know, the marriage relationship. We've already talked about sexual purity outside of marriage, you know, avoiding the act, if you will. Uh, Brian, I think, just did a you know, really good job of talking about not only avoiding the overt act, but also inward thoughts, etc. But the Bible also goes on to talk about sexual devotion. And when I say devotion, I'm referring to, you know, within the uh, marriage relationship. Now, certainly many religious groups might promote the sense of sexual commitment, you know, one to another within marriage and promote a stable family unit as a result. However, they may allow or encourage various accommodations for a divorce. And so I want to talk about that for, for a few moments. And, and that includes, you know, granted by, you know, civil government, what is sometimes called no-fault divorce. But the Bible even speaks to this as well. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus speaking, Everyone that puts away his wife, except for the cause of fornication, makes her an adulteress. And whoever don't marry her when she's put away, commits adultery. Likewise, uh, Matthew chapter 19, uh, verses 8 and 9, he said to the, and again, the, the context here was uh, Pharisees asking Jesus, you know, can I put away my wife for any reason? And Jesus responds, uh, beginning with verse 8, Moses, for your hardness of heart, suffered you or allowed you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it had not been so. And of course, the beginning would be Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. But I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except for fornication, and shall marry another, commits adultery. And he that marries her who, when she is put away, commits adultery. And of course, as we mentioned already uh, previously, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. I know, Brian, within our modern culture of, you know, no-fault divorce, that a lot of people, you know, fall into the trap of thinking, well, you know, things don't work out within my marriage, you know, I'll just get a divorce and, and find somebody else to marry, and everything will be just fine with God. Well, these verses say that's, that's not the case. Uh, the Bible puts very, very strict restrictions around marriage, in terms of sexual loyalty, if you will, one to another, and makes that the, the violation of that loyalty the only reason that a person can put away their spouse who's committed adultery against them and allows the innocent party to marry another. And again, this is, there's a lot more to this than what we've talked about in today's podcast. So I would recommend our listeners go back to episode 20 for more about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and this concept of sexual devotion within marriage, and the only reason God allows the, the couple to scripturally divorce. Brian? Yeah, let's next talk about sexual attraction. So when we were talking about sexual thinking, you know, we did touch on some of this as it relates to people wanting to be desirable, people, you know, men lusting after women, women lusting after men, and so forth. But certainly, when it comes to sexual attraction, it's not limited to just men and women. We know it's also men and men and women and women. So, you know, over the last several decades, the topic of homosexuality has gone from being illegal to be in many countries, illegal to being tolerated, to being embraced and celebrated. So when you think about gay rights or federally mandated recognition of marriage or pride weeks, pride months, you know, being given a special protected status, 
you know, we've seen what's happened to homosexuality as it relates to how our society views it now. We've also seen it blossom under an ever-widening sexual umbrella, we might say, loosely called, you know, LGBTQ+, of sexual orientation or self-identification of gender, the sexual indoctrination of young children by public school officials that teach them that they can decide what their gender should be, that it is not fixed at birth. And, you know, the sad thing is, Jeff, that an increasing number of Christian denominations are now, you know, allowing or promoting same-sex relationships, homosexuality, including, you know, having practicing homosexuals in church leadership positions. But the Bible makes it very clear this is not acceptable. So let's just take a look at a couple of passages. So Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, as we kind of started out the podcast with, that, you know, the original intention from God is that a man would be attracted to a woman, a woman would be attracted to a man, they would leave their father, be joined to their wife, and so forth. So Matthew 19, beginning in verse 4, Have you not read, Jesus says, that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and cleave and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. First Corinthians chapter seven, beginning in verse one, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of fornications, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So we see it's man and woman here. The Bible never says it's acceptable for a man and a man and a woman and a woman. So for sexual desires, sexual attraction of those of the same sex, it's considered perverse to God. In fact, we see homosexuality is condemned in many places in the Bible. Let's just take a look at Romans chapter 1. And we won't read all of this, but really it's covered in verses 18 through 27, where here we see that Paul is discussing how the wrath of God is reserved for those who are ungodly and unrighteous. And so he states in this section of scripture that God has allowed these unrighteous people to be given over to their perverted passions. So let's just take a look at a few verses. Notice what he states in verses 24 through 27. He says, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. So that's about as clear as it gets as far as what God thinks about women and women and men and men. Now, we're also told that Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed for their homosexuality, and they were given as an example of what would happen to those who commit this sin. So if you look in Jude verse 7, it says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So just these two groups of passages alone makes it clear that men with men, women or women are considered vile passions that you're leaving the natural use of what God intended with a man and a woman, committing what is shameful, and therefore they receive the just penalty of their error, the vengeance of eternal fire, certainly in the day of judgment. So, you know, regardless of what man considers to be normal and appropriate today, God's word is clear. You know, these kinds of relationships are sinful, and the marriage relationship has always been meant a man and a woman. And then going back just to finish this up, you know, we're talking about sexual attraction. It is perfectly normal for a man and woman to be attracted to each other. It is not normal for men and men and women and women. Jeff? Yeah, good points. And, you know, Brian, we've been kind of talking about sexual orientation or sexual attraction, homosexuality, etc. 
But recently, there's been a lot of emphasis on what we might call sexual identity. And of course, the Bible speaks to this as well. Uh, now, I you know, need to kind of do a little bit of clarification here. You know, some people are now promoting certain practices or even promoting, you know, legal rights for those whose quote-unquote gender, what we might call self-identification, and how they feel about themselves in contrast to what they claim their, you know, biological sex is. So they, they try to draw a distinction between sex and gender. But as we've seen already, the Bible, and we'll see more, you know, the Bible does not make that distinction. Thousands of years, sex and gender, same thing. Male, female, boy, girl, man, woman. But yet today, there's a lot of people saying, well, those are two separate concepts. That there's your biological sex. You are born a male or female. But then you can also self-identify as a separate gender. You may be a biological male. You may self-identify as a female and, and vice versa. Or you may self-identify sometimes as a male, sometimes as a man, and sometimes as a woman. Or you may be uh, self-identify as neither or both, etc. This is what is sometimes called you know, the transgender movement. And it includes things like adopting the appearances and mannerisms of the opposite sex, being allowed into bathrooms and shower facilities with the opposite sex. Sometimes it's participating in sports competitions with the opposite sex. To include, as uh, when this podcast is being recorded, biological men basically destroying women's sports by competing as a woman. And of course, being physically larger, stronger, etc., basically denying women you know, equal rights, if you will, in something as simple as you know competitive sports. Some may even go as far as either cosmetic surgery or actual you know sex change operations. As I mentioned, you know recent publicity over transgender athletes is an example of this. Recent publicity over pronouns. Self-biological male wants to self-identify and force people to refer to them as she or her. In some cases, even extending to children, Brian, as you mentioned earlier, where giving children what are called, you know, chemical, uh, chemical castration, you know, puberty blockers or actual genital mutilation at a very young age. And of course, there's horrific stories of, you know, these children growing up and suffering, you know, great, you know, emotional, psychological trauma, you know, based on what had happened to them. So anyway, this is like an ongoing kind of thing as we're recording this podcast in early uh, 2023. All that said, admittedly, you know, there may be some genetic or hormonal or psychological aspects to consider with specific individuals you know, certainly genetic abnormalities where the person may have hormonal imbalance or genitalia of both sexes, etc. But generally speaking, throughout the scriptures, men and women are expected to dress differently, appear differently, act differently. Deuteronomy 22, 5, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 33, Titus 2, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 6 and 7, and verses 14 and 15, and 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And this is where we get into an interesting thing you know, about sexual identity for not only a person to self-identify as a gender, which they are not, but there's increasing pressure, as I mentioned, for instance, with the preferred pronouns, that Christians are now being pressured to endorse and encourage what's called transgenderism by using these you know, preferred pronouns, calling a man she because he self-identifies as a woman. A problem with that is that on the one hand, you know, when a person's feelings do not align with biological facts, are we to encourage them? Are we to encourage and endorse and support their psychological problems, I might say delusions, are we to lie to them? Well, Ephesians chapter 4 verses 14 and 15 talks about that we should 
no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, we are speak the truth in love. And that's why some Christians are refusing to go along with this movement and call men women and call women men and refer to them by their preferred pronouns that is in basically lying to them in terms of their actual physical factual state. Anyway, just a very interesting aspect of you know current events and sexuality in contrast to what the Bible has to say regarding sexual identity, right? Yeah, and I think it's just a good example of there's no end to the ideas that man can come up with when he's left to his own devices, right? And, you know, some of these preferred pronouns and convincing children they're not males and females are just examples of how perverted man's thinking can be. It's, it's just very sad. Well, and I might also add that, it, you know, it certainly does not give us right to be mean or cruel or slander or name call, etc., I mean, as, as I mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4, we can speak truth. We need to speak the truth in love, you know, out of, out of loving concern for these kinds of people in these kinds of situations. Yeah, good point. I appreciate you bringing that up because it does make us angry, right, when people pervert God's word. But to your point, that doesn't give us a right to be hateful and to say hateful things and, and so forth. You know, this last section here that we want to think about just briefly is, is what we might call our sexual destiny. So, you know, for all the emphasis on sexuality that we've been talking about, you would think, you know, it's a critical and permanent part of our nature. In other words, some may conclude that they must be married. But if we consider, you know, passages that we find, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 7, where it talks about being what we might call celibate, you know, remain single versus being married. You know, when you look in 1 Corinthians 7, the Christians at that time were undergoing a lot of persecution. And so as a result, Paul was actually, through the Holy Spirit, giving them advice that it might be better at that time to remain single versus being married. And we can learn from that, that they certainly, once again, weren't required to be married. So for instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 8, he says, To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. This comes from the English Standard Version. Verse 9, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So in other words, if you're not able to exercise self-control sexually by remaining or being single, then you should consider being married. Because as he mentioned, it's, it's better to marry than to burn. And so something to consider. Now, verse 26 kind of goes into what I mentioned as far as he says here, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is, in other words, single. Well, that was kind of a unique situation. But once again, the, the overarching principle here is that it's perfectly fine to remain single, but you need to be able to keep your passions and sexual desires under control. Otherwise, you will burn, certainly, in eternal fire if you're judged to be unfaithful. Over in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30, we also see some teaching from Jesus where he teaches us that marriage is a relationship that's limited to earth and that in heaven, that relationship won't matter anymore. So he says, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as angels in heaven. So once again, marriage is a unique relationship that God created for when we are here on this earth. So while marriage is good, it is not required. And I'll just add, you know, if we do choose to marry, it is important, it's critical, we might say, to find a Christian spouse who is committed to faithfully serving the Lord and working with you to do the Lord's work. And I mention that because sometimes, Jeff, people make the mistake of thinking, well, I know my future spouse doesn't even believe in God, but I'm going to be able to convert them. And, you know, my experience over the years has been that's not true. In fact, often it's not, that they more often are drawn away from the Lord, not saying it's impossible to turn them to the Lord, but wouldn't it make more sense to be married to somebody that shares the same common spiritual goals that you do? So anyhow, Jeff, back to you. Yeah, certainly a wise counsel there, Brian. Now, what we've done so far, you know, looking through the scriptures, various aspects of sexuality, uh, and in a few moments we'll kind of illustrate them with a lot of questions that we've received uh, at the website. We, before we go there, let me just make a, a couple sort of summary points so far. You know, as we've already mentioned, you know, nothing in the New Testament would give Christians 
any liberty, any authority to mistreat, harass, or you know, persecute those who are sexually immoral or divorced or lesbian or transgender. I mean, we are all sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. But we also need to be reminded that while we are in the world, we are not to be of the world. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, 2 Peter 1, verse 4, 1 John 2, 15 and 16. And I might add that self-professed Christians who belong to, you know, Christian religious groups, they need to be held accountable by their members for teaching the truth. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Uh, something that, you know, comes to mind. Ephesians chapter 5. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather even reprove them. For the things which are done by them in secret, it is a shame even to speak of. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12. So not only, you know, do we need to hold ourselves accountable for proper sexuality according to the scriptures, but if we belong to a religious group, well, that group also needs to be held accountable for, you know, complying with the scriptures with proper scriptural sexuality. So, Brian, at this point, uh, let's kind of illustrate a lot of these points with questions that have been given to us from to the website. Yeah, we've had several that have been submitted over the years. So we did select a handful of these to, as Jeff mentioned, give an idea of the kinds of questions we get and that people are curious about. And then, of course, we'll see what God's Word says about that. So, Jeff, the first one, somebody who submitted this question anonymously, which is fine. And this person said, as a teenager, I have been struggling with powerful urges of sexual desire and temptations to participate in activities that are sexually immoral. I'm willing to give up things for God, but I don't have the knowledge of what to give up. Can you help? Well, and this, I think, is a good example of someone that we can commend, you know, for their sincerity and for their candor. I mean, having a realistic self-perception according to God's Word is certainly essential, you know, for our well-being, spiritual well-being, and continued growth. Now, worldly people might say, as you kind of mentioned earlier, you know, it's okay to window shop so long as you don't buy, <laughs> Uh, in, in a, you know, lusting after other people as long as you don't act on those lusts. But, you know, and that's not what the scriptures say, as you indicated earlier, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 29. You know, not only is the physical act of fornication, adultery, whatever, wrong, but it's also a sin to even, you know, look at another person with, you know, the intent of, you know, lusting after them. And, of course, as Galatians 5, you know, 16 through 28 mentioned, you know, you can't walk according to the Spirit you know, if you're looking to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. As Christians, Romans 13, verse 14, we're commanded to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Now, honestly, Brian, especially, you know, teenagers, hormones, etc., a very natural, you know, sex drive, especially uh, when young, the kinds of feelings and mental images that we carry with us uh, certainly is very important to have, you know, wholesome images and avoid lustful images, etc., especially in the, the sex-crazed society. This person was asking, you know, for some, like, practical stuff. Well, here, here's some practical suggestions offered to them, as well as to our listening audience. Actively avoid the situations and people that trigger these kinds of sexual temptations. Fill our minds, in contrast, with God's Word, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, to include things like, you know, singing spiritual songs. Closely associate with faithful Christians. When you first start feeling this temptation, it may help even verbally to say no, or, you know, to get up and, and do something different. And I hate to say it, but, you know, you may have to limit or actually suspend your access to TV, cable, internet, video games for a period of time. So several different practical things to help get one's mind off of where the body wants it to go uh, and toward where God wants the mind to go. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I'll just add one other, and that is, you know, I remember somebody sharing something a preacher told them years ago, and that they called it the second look. You know, sometimes you'll, you'll come across a situation where somebody walks into your field of view, maybe that's immodestly dressed. And, you know, what should you do? Well, you should look away. 
if you were to look back, once again, that second look, or you were to stare at them, well, that's going to invite thoughts that you want to avoid, right? So if somebody comes into your vision, just look away, walk away, turn away. And that tells the Lord, you know what, I'm not interested in seeing that. And if you see it by accident, it's not a sin. But if you keep staring at it, well, then it certainly could be. Oh, okay. So you get the next question submitted by Buddy. He asks, are not carnal knowledge and such practices among youth and adults, and he's referring to things such as heavy petting and engaging in acts that illustrate the expression of going as far as you can without actually entering into intercourse, are these forms of fornication? The answer is yes, and I think we really just answered it when you talked about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You know, because of the sexual desires and lusts that it generates within our heart, which the Bible makes clear is sinful. Now, you might say, well, hold on, that's not actual fornication. No, but Jesus says it's the same if you have those thoughts. Now, if you think about heavy petting, doing something like that, well, we all know if you've ever made out, for lack of a better term, or kissed somebody passionately, well, of course it's going to arouse these natural desires. And so what does that lead to? Well, it leads to us thinking about what you'd like to do with that person. So I don't think anybody could argue that it's not sinful. Certainly, Jesus makes that very clear. In fact, let's consider one other passage. And that's over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. It says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Also, if we consider you know, what's taught in, in Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we're told there that we are not to use our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. And it goes on to say, but instead we should be using them as instruments of righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 tells us to flee sexual immorality. So the spiritually minded person will avoid situations that will cause them to think or arouse these illicit passions. Now, I just want to say something real quick about dating. You know, it's so important to understand that the relationships in the Bible, as it relates to sexual attraction and sexual intercourse, those relationships in the Bible center on marriage. And the whole concept of dating or the concept of a boyfriend or girlfriend is really a man-made idea. It's a cultural thing that has arisen over the years. And so, you know, the Bible teaches us also that any intimate relationships are only for marriage. And so when you think about it, the problem with, you know, the boyfriend-girlfriend type of relationship is that it is so easy for it to eventually lead to sexual immorality. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. So, while the scriptures do not necessarily ban dating, I think we can see that it's something that's very dangerous and something that we have to be very careful with because of what it can lead to. Uh, and Brian, I think that that's a good point because you might be able to make a technical distinction where fornication, sexual intercourse or equivalent and stuff leading up to it is technically not intercourse. But as you said, it is extremely dangerous very, very often leads to, you know, commission of the actual overt act. It certainly stimulates the lusts to, you know, mo move you into that direction. And as you said, even people that are dating need to be kind of careful about going, quote unquote, too far down that path, uh, so to speak, because it is somewhat of a slippery slope when our feelings, emotions, and the flesh sort of, you know, take over and they start to override our minds. And we start to rationalize and say, well, maybe it's not so bad if we do this next thing. Well, and then the next thing, etc. So, good wisdom. So true in the work of Satan, we might say. So, okay. So the next question comes from Jake. She or he, excuse me, says, "My girlfriend is amazing. She is a Christian as well as we get along great. But lately, she has been trying to get me to have sex before marriage. I reminded her that God does not favor sex before marriage. She replied by saying that God forgives us for sin." Oof. Yes. That's kind of an interesting twist on that, isn't it? Well, uh, and, and speaking of rationalization, there's one for you. Like, well, yeah, we can do it, but God will forgive us afterwards. It's like, uh, yeah. 
Okay, so certainly it is not uncommon, you know, in a dating relationship for one person to pressure the other, you know, for sex. Uh, and in this particular case, this person's girlfriend is being a stumbling block and encouraging them to sin. We talk about, you know, a stumbling block, you know, a very picturesque kind of phrase. Uh, Luke chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. For it is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Or it would be better for him if a millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea, and that he should offend one of these little ones, you know, cause to sin. Romans chapter 14, verses 12 and 13. For then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this not to put a stumbling block or a cause to sin in our brother's way. And somewhat, Brian, is kind of a side comment. You know, this is a good example of what some people fall into, uh, negative consequences of what's sometimes called faith only, or once saved, always saved. And sometimes these doctrines will influence our attitudes toward obedience and sin. You know, sometimes, you know, promote a somewhat of a casual attitude. Now, in this particular case, uh, I might advise that if this uh, girlfriend is unwilling, you know, claims to be a Christian, quote unquote, but if she's unwilling to listen to New Testament scriptures that talk about sexual purity, like we mentioned in today's podcast, that... Maybe she's not the kind of Christian you want to try to spend the rest of your life with. You know, maybe you need to seek a girlfriend who truly is a Christian, not only in name, but also in deed and in thought. You know, an actual faithful, dedicated Christian. And Brian, just briefly, I might also reference our listeners back to episode 88 for more regarding perseverance of the saints or, you know, falling away, as well as episodes 50. Six and 57 about uh, salvation. Yeah, you know, when you think about human reasoning, it's interesting how some can think that, well, I'll just commit this sin because God will forgive me. It makes you wonder, well, what, what is their repentance like? Because when you go to God and you repent, it should be driven by godly sorrow and shame. And I'm not saying this woman wouldn't have felt that, but... It kind of makes you wonder, well, would they, if they've already thought in advance, well, I can just commit this sin and ask God for forgiveness. That's just not the mentality that we want to have. It's just, like you said, it leads to things like once saved, always saved, and that kind of thing. So anyhow. Right. Well, and I might also mention that very often it can also be associated with other things like, you know, in kind of a physical sense, you know, sexually transmitted diseases or unwanted pregnancy or even leading to abortion or, you know, murdering your unborn child. Again, sin can snowball. Oh, that's so true. Okay. So Brian, you get the next one from Nick. Is it a sin to live with my girlfriend if we're not having sex? Well, I'd say to that, you know, at a minimum, you would be giving the appearance of evil. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 22, we are told to abstain from all appearance of evil. So, you know, I think it's reasonable to say that, you know, most people would assume if a man or woman is living together, they're going places together, they're holding hands, etc., that they are also having an intimate relationship as well. So is that really the image that you would want to project? Would you not be giving an appearance of evil? And I'd also say, Jeff, you know, I kind of find it difficult to believe that when two people are dating and they're kissing, etc., that by living together, it would not eventually lead to sexual contact. So we could just say that's just unwise, right? So it's unwise, you're giving an appearance of evil, and so something to consider. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, basically it's putting you into a very dangerous situation. And why, why would a faithful Christian do that, you know, fundamentally? That's right. Next question comes from David. Here David submits, virgin man marrying a non-virgin lady. Will a woman who has a sexual past be a good wife for a man who kept himself for marriage? Will she forget about her past sexual experiences and not compare her husband to past lovers? Wow, what a thoughtful question. Well, indeed. And an interesting twist, I might say, at least within our current culture, where in general, and I know this is very general, you know, women are somewhat expected to be somewhat sexually pure. Men, on the other hand, well, you know, boys will be boys, right? 
But this is a very thoughtful person. And, you know, the concept of a, a virgin man, some people laugh at that. But nonetheless, as we've seen, you know, from the scriptures, you know, that's the way God wants it to be, both female and male, until and before marriage. So, first of all, let's recognize the New Testament does not require a person to marry only a virgin. Now, for example, you know, Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, while her husband lives, she marries another man. She'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So she's not a virgin. And yet, you know, allowed to marry, you know, someone else. Now, this is a really good question. Will this be a good wife, given her sexual background? You know, it's certainly important to consider all of a person's background. Background in terms of religious beliefs, views on morality, importance of marriage, importance of sexual devotion, etc. When we become romantically connected with someone, we need to consider all of their background. And so a person that has a quote-unquote sexual past may or may not be indicative of a number of things. You know, it may reflect a sense of ignorance or a lack of teaching. It, more critically, though, might reflect a moral weakness or a disposition for what we might call sexual variety. In some cases, it may be an expression of sexual abuse, you know, as a minor or even rape. So it kind of depends, you know, on the situation, but certainly is an area that a person would need to take a careful consideration of. Not wrong inherently, but just something to uh, be careful about. Brian? Yeah, good thoughts and certainly appreciate David's attitude. Really? Okay, so you get the next one from Kimberly. Kimberly writes in, My stepson is a 28-year-old man who is gay. I believe that what he's doing is sinful, and he knows that I'm a Christian. I don't know how I should interact with him because he is outwardly gay. It's a touchy area for me because my husband doesn't want me to say anything negative about his son's sexuality. There you go, Brian. Yeah, I can certainly appreciate Kimberly's quandary, we might say. It's a sensitive subject, certainly not easy. So my recommendation would be, and certainly the Bible teaches us, that we should be kind and loving to everyone, regardless of what they may be engaged in. But that doesn't mean we, of course, endorse or condone their behavior. So there is that fine line between giving the impression that, hey, you're okay, you're great, let's just treat everybody like it's all right. And, and certainly we don't want to see the opposite, right? We, want, we don't want to be hateful towards them either. So it's just balancing act, right? You're being loving, you're being kind, you treat them like any other sinner. And really, if you think about the sin of homosexuality, it's a sin just like adultery and drunkenness and, and all those other things. So as it relates to how we treat them, we want to be kind and loving. Now, as a Christian, out of concern for a sinner's soul, you know, if we can find a way, we always want to let them know, if possible, that the Bible condemns their sin, in this case, homosexuality, and tells us that those who practice these sins will not be able to inherit the kingdom of God or, you know, go to heaven. So passages that talk about this, of course, are 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Hopefully we could be influential enough to teach them that God loves all men and simply wants them to repent so they are not lost, as we see in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. And, you know, no doubt it can be uncomfortable trying to speak to someone Certainly if her husband doesn't want that, but, you know, maybe she could write them a letter or send them a note just saying, you know, hey, I'm just concerned for your soul. I just want you to know here's what the Bible says, that God is love and, you know, that there there is a way that you can bring yourself into a, a good or special relationship with God. So, Jeff, not an easy one, is it? And, uh, you know, sometimes we just have to use our best judgment in that situation. True. Well, and I can see, especially in the situation she describes where, you know, there's this undercurrent of her husband not wanting anything to be said. Well, you know, and that creates tension in, in the marriage relationship. And I might also, by extension, say that, you know, sometimes you see within congregations, you know, that kind of, a, you know, go along to get along, don't rock the boat, you know, kind of attitude with people in religious fellowship, 
with others that are, you know, not living faithfully. Yes, indeed. All right, so the next question for you, Jeff, comes from Basayo, and he asked, does the human spirit have any gender or sex? Yeah, that's an interesting one. You know, certainly we associate sex, gender, male, female, you know, with the physical body. But, you know, Baseo kind of goes beyond that. What about our spirit, our human eternal spirit that will eventually be reunited with our body? Now, there's nothing within the scriptures that indicate a person's spirit or soul has a gender or has a sex. As I said, normally it's associated with the body and an expression of one's DNA. In fact, it's interesting if you look at the Greek word that's translated spirit, a pneuma, which is a neuter noun, neither male nor female, the noun form is. And I might add this, again, is somewhat at the core of the transgender controversy or a self-perceived difference between one's, you know, factual biological sex and their feelings. But, you know, fundamentally the answer to the question is no, the human spirit does not have a gender or does not have a sex. Brian, any thoughts on that before I ask you the next one? Yeah, and it, as you mentioned, you know, the key here is to not then make the error of saying, well, then it doesn't matter what our physical fleshly bodies are. Well, God still created us as male or female, so that still matters, right? So anyhow. Oh, exactly. And the next question is kind of related to that. Victor writes in, if God made everyone to be like they are, why would God make someone gay or genderqueer, his terminology, if being that is a sin? And sexuality and gender identity is not a choice. Yeah, this has been a narrative we've been hearing in the U.S. for several years now as far as God making someone gay and that they have no choice. They can't change what they desire. And of course, man's worldly wisdom would have us believe that God, quote unquote, makes someone gay. But that really directly conflicts with the clear teaching in the Bible that God made woman for man to be a helper to him. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. In fact, he made woman from man. He also made woman as someone with whom he could become one flesh, as we see in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24. And so that they could be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. So, Two people of the same sex cannot fulfill what God intended. Now, probably the bigger point here, though, is that, you know, God made man in his righteous image. We know that from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And he has condemned homosexuality, as we pointed out in several passages in this podcast. And we even looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, where you might remember it talks about, you know, God, for those that had these inordinate or sinful desires. He allowed them to be unclean. He allowed them to live according to the lust of their hearts. And it calls that exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it goes on in verse 26 to call these vile passions and how women who do this exchanged what God naturally wanted them to do, and that's to have a desire for men to do what's against nature. And then, of course, verse 27 says it's the same for men. They burn in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful. So does it really make sense, based on this plain teaching, to think that God could make somebody gay? I mean, we can't reasonably conclude that God would make anyone gay, and we would also have to conclude that mankind simply wants us to believe this lie because it justifies their sin. So, you know, if you think about it also, making somebody gay would make God an unjust judge if he would then condemn them for something that they could not control or had no choice over. And, you know, I would say, Jeff, also, there are many examples I've seen in my own life of men and women who have been what we might call sexually confused, yet once they've learned the truth, they've given up these desires, and they've instead correctly desired somebody of the opposite sex, and they've done what God has wanted them to do. So, to make this argument that, well, God makes people gay and, oh, by the way, they can't change that. In fact, there are even some like California that have laws against anybody trying to teach someone that these desires can be changed. So it just shows you, once again, how far man can go using his own human reason. Yeah, good points. Now, you know, certainly, you know, from a, a biological perspective, 
Some people do have certain genetic predispositions. I mean, some people tend to become alcoholics easier. Some people tend to become, you know, addicted to gambling easier. Some people tend to become, have more, you know, lustful thoughts oriented toward, you know, same sex. Or they may have some, you know, degree of, you know, gender, psychological confusion, etc. But yet, as you're pointing out, they still have free will. They still have free choice. And, you know, the Bible says these are the kinds of things we should stay away from. And in contrast, you know, strive toward, you know, sexual purity or soberness or properly handling our money or properly handling our anger, you know, whatever the case may be. That's exactly right. And hopefully our listeners will consider what the Bible says here. It's not Jeff and I giving our opinions. It's what the Bible teaches. So, Jeff, two more questions, and then we will wrap this one up. So the next one for you comes from Julie. If same-sex marriage is sinful because it goes against the Bible, what if it is a good, healthy marriage that honors God in all other respects? Is that the same, I think they're saying, as a Christian straight marriage? Right. And I've kind of heard this term before, like long-term, committed, loving relationship that these two men have for one another, or that these two women have for one another. And sometimes into that kind of a civilly blessed union, you know, they adopt children or they have children from a, you know, previous straight marriage, etc. And people say, well, you know, they're not frequenting the gay bars or other places where there's lots of casual sex and hookups of you know homosexuals etc and so isn't that a good thing and even some christians will say well you know as long as they're you know devoted to one another etc that they can have these long-term committed relationships sometimes they may even refer to scriptures like with sodom and gomorrah and say well you know that's just not plain homosexuality that's more like, you know, rape, uh, uh, casual sex, gang rape. That's what's prohibited in the scriptures, not these loving long-term relationships. But, you know, as we've seen today in today's podcast, that just isn't true. Or as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 points out, clearly says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. So, hence, you know, a quote-unquote good, healthy marriage between two men or between two women, by definition, cannot honor God. To go back to uh, Julie's original question, Brian? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's just another example of where people in, mean well, right? You, know, you talk about, you know, good, healthy marriage. There's no doubt it could be, you know, two people love each other and they're respectful. And they might even follow a majority of what God's word says. But if you violate God's law, you're violating God's law, and, and being kind and loving doesn't change that as it relates to what God expects. Right. Well, and again, can you persist in sinful activity and still be counted righteous as God? Well, no, as we saw previously under you know our uh, once saved, always saved kind of comments. Okay, Brian, that kind of brings us to the last question for you from Lisa, and she writes, can I still support the LGBTQIA plus community? Can I support them even if what they do is sinful because everyone should have equal rights? So the short answer is no. We cannot support or condone sinful behavior. Now, I will say that, you know, we can and should sympathize with them and love the sinner, sometimes we say. But to endorse any kind of sin would be saying it is okay and could certainly make them feel that God is also fine with this behavior. You know, Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 15 tells us, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. So we see what the Lord thinks about this. He doesn't want us to justify those who are sinful. Now, as far as this term equal rights, you know, those in the LGBT community should have some of the same equal rights granted to all men, such as, you know, freedom from harassment and bullying and hate, etc. But they should not have equal rights as it relates to marriage, for instance, as God has limited that relationship to a man and a woman, as we've talked about. In fact, you can see that mentioned over in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. So, you know, it depends on what kinds of equal rights you're talking about. As long as it doesn't conflict with God's law, then yes, absolutely. And as you touched on earlier, Jeff, 
You know, we certainly don't have the right to hate or treat people spitefully who are in this community. We should treat them like we do with anybody, everyone with love. But just once again, be careful that you're not endorsing sinful behavior because as Proverbs 17, 15 says, that's an abomination to the Lord. And that kind of brings us to the end of today's podcast, which covers a lot of aspects of our sexuality, including how did it originate, the need for sexual purity, the relationship in marriage, fornication, adultery, gay rights, LGBTQ+, etc. So a lot of different topics. Brian, do you have any uh, closing thoughts before I refer people back to our website? Yeah, but just ask everybody to consider what God's Word says. I know we say that often, but, you know, Jeff and I are simply conveying what God's Word teaches. And if there is something that we mentioned today that you have further questions about, certainly our website, as Jeff will point you back to, will most likely have, you know, those same questions answered. Or if not, then then please use our Ask a Question button and feel free to ask any of the questions that you might have. Cool. Appreciate that, Brian. And like he mentioned, a lot of material at our website under the topics menu item or under the uh, alphabetical you know letters you'll find on the homepage. And this is you know somewhat in alphabetical order. E for divorce, F for family and fornication, H for homosexuality, L for love, M for marriage, and finally P for pornography. A lot of good material. We would strongly encourage our listeners to investigate and as always try to apply to their lives to become faithful to God and to be more faithful to God and try as you perhaps can to influence others to be the same. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.